This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's, who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hello. With Rebecca Ford. Hi. And joining us for the first part of today's show, because the writers are on strike, is our colleague Natalie Jarvie. It's happening. The writers are striking. Uh, you're not reporting from a picket line. Uh, that would be bad audio. But uh, you are our, our person on the ground. Uh, we have a lot to talk about in today's show. We're going to talk about new Oscar rules, the Tony nominations. Um, but Natalie, you are here to kind of help us walk through the really big news in Hollywood, which is very detailed and business oriented, which is not usually our focus on this show. But I think you know, as well as everyone in Hollywood, that um, this writer strike is going to affect everything, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when the writers struck in 2007, it had lasting impact on the TV shows and the movies that people saw. And, you know, I'm expecting the same will be the case this year, too. Uh, yeah, we were doing some flashing back to uh, the second season of Friday Night Lights and some of the other uh, uh, <laughs> weird cultural detritus that uh, don't get discussed enough about uh what an impact the 2007 writer's strike had. And I mean, I think TV has changed a lot since then, but uh, weird weird things could happen from here on out, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, the writers striking today won't immediately shut down production, but if it lasts long enough, it could have a real impact on what people see on their screens. Uh, you know, the first thing we will see is the late night shows will start to go dark. They all had a call last week where they, you know, decided on their course of action and they do plan to, you know, basically go off the air in support of their writers. Uh, we could also see SNL not be able to come back for its, uh, final episode before the end of its season. And, um, you know, the other big one to watch is that all of the broadcast shows that were used to coming back in the fall, shows like Abbott Elementary, uh, might be delayed because their writer's rooms were literally supposed to start this week and they can't oh, now wow. go into their writer's rooms. So that, you know, depending on how long the strike goes, could have a real impact on, on when a show like Abbott comes back. Yeah, I saw a tweet that said uh, the Yellow Jacket season three writers room had one day of work before the strike <laughs> began. So um, uh, maybe that's another one to watch out, watch out for a delay. Well, and I heard a lot of stories of writers just scrambling over the weekend, yesterday, you know, down to the wire, trying to get scripts finished and polished and back to, you know, studios uh, before the deadline. Uh, you know, writers, uh, nothing better than a deadline to get writers to finally kick into gear. Uh, I know that. I wouldn't know firsthand. anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, so, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, what, uh, you know, what kind of uh, creative juices were flowing late last night. I, I will also say, too, you know, the end of the writer's strike could be a real fruitful creative period for people. I mean, this time, uh, while writers are striking, they can't pitch projects, they can't talk to studios about projects, but they can work on spec scripts, they can, you know, maybe use this time off to develop those ideas that have been in the back of their mind. So we could see a real kind of creative renaissance uh, coming out of the strike whenever, whenever that happens. Natalie, I, I mean, I, I do agree that, you know, there could be a great creative renaissance. But I think that the issue that I've been kind of reading about is that a lot of the people who are going to go on strike are just going to have to get other jobs and in fact have been working other jobs to sort of make ends meet. Um, Your great piece that you wrote with Joy Press opens with an anecdote about a person who was writing for uh, The Handmaid's Tale and was driving a lift, you know, and as that show was like winning an Emmy. Um, So how bad economically, just for our listeners who aren't as familiar with it, has this situation gotten with the rise of streaming? I mean, the question of like, well, oh, they're TV writers. They're so, you know, rich. Why are they complaining? But that's really not the reality. Is is that right? It's not the reality. You're right. And I, I think things have gotten pretty bad, which is why we're getting this strike. It's, it's become fairly existential for a lot of writers. And I think they felt like they needed to strike in order to make a point. Streaming has fundamentally changed the way that TV not not gets made in terms of the production, but, you know, gets made in terms of, you know, kind of how people are getting paid. And and the biggest shift, the best way to describe it is that writers have suddenly become almost like gig economy workers. Uh, there uh, was uh, the invention a few years ago, thanks to streaming, of this thing called the mini room, um, which is essentially a, a writer's room that's um, much smaller than the standard writer's room. It usually convenes for a fewer number of weeks. And this is something that now all the studios employ uh, because it's cheaper for them. They can basically get a group of writers together, have them bang out a bunch of scripts before a show even starts production. Then those writers, they go home and the show starts production. And so what that means is that writers are not getting paid for as many weeks of work. They're also not learning on the ground about how a show actually gets made, which isn't helpful for them when it comes to, you know, career advancements and looking to, you know, maybe get elevated to showrunner or producer. And uh, that means that these writers are having to now jump around from job to job to job. There's never stability. They never know, you know, when their next paycheck is going to come in. And it's made it really hard for them. It used to be that writers also could fall back on the residual checks that they got from shows that they had had written. Essentially, you know, once a show airs once, if it goes into syndication or, you know, ends up streaming on Netflix, you get a check for that if you're the writer of that of that episode. And uh, those residuals have dried up because of streaming as well. So there's not even that extra money to fall back on when times are tough and, and writers are, are looking for for different gigs. You know what I wondered reading your piece, because I think you mentioned in your your enjoys piece that you get the average salary, which includes the likes of Ryan Murphy and Shonda Rhimes. Um, but that doesn't really account for the median, which is what's really important is like what the average writer is making. Is the answer to this income inequality just this is America and that's everything is income inequality? Or is there another explanation for why there's such a crazy disparity between the top and bottom here? I mean, that's some of it. Absolutely. I also think that streaming and the kind of the moment that we have been in up until this year, which we all like to call um, peak TV, basically, where there was suddenly just, you know, so many shows on the air, 
that created this kind of scenario of haves and haves nots because of course you know, a Netflix or a Warner Brothers wanted to, you know, do a deal with the biggest creatives. They wanted to tie someone like Shonda Rhimes or J.J. Abrams up, give them a big lucrative overall deal and, you know, keep them exclusive to their platforms. But what that did is that did cut out the bottom. And and these, these mini rooms in particular do that because everyone basically gets paid the same rate to work in a mini room. And so if you're a studio, you're going to try to go out and get the most experienced writer you can get to be in that room. You're getting, you know, good bang for your buck. If, if you can get them at the same rate as everyone else, that's creating fewer opportunities for those younger writers. And it is creating this, this kind of gap in uh, opportunities and also um, in pay for, you know, the top, top writers versus, you know, maybe someone who's newer in their career. And the studio's position or the streamer's position would be, look, we bought Warner Brothers, we're in billions of dollars of debt. Disney would say, you know, we're in X billions of dollars of debt because of Disney Plus. We can't afford to do this. But there is still a lot of money coming into these companies, right? It's just how it's being distributed. Yeah, I mean, all of these companies are, you know, generating revenue, billions of dollars of revenue on these streaming services that they launched in the last few years. The challenge right now is that none of those streaming services, except Netflix, really, are as profitable yet. And and that was okay for a long time. Wall Street investors kind of, you know, gave these companies a pass, said, okay, we get it, Disney. It's going to take you a while to build up a subscriber base for Disney Plus, and you're going to have to invest a lot of money in order to find those subscribers. So it's okay if you're losing some billions of dollars for a few years. But Wall Street now is starting to get antsy. They want to see that these services can make money and that they're being a little bit more fiscally responsible. And so it is a really tough time for these negotiations to be happening because these these big studios have had to lay a lot of people off. They've had to cut costs and they're not necessarily very um, excited about, you know, conceding to writers and giving them raises. But at the same time, the writers have a really fair point, which is that we have to be able to afford to do this job and do this job in a very expensive city like Los Angeles. You know, help us make this job sustainable. Help us not have to be gig workers. And you have nothing without the writers. Like, you don't really have a choice to keep moving forward unless the writers actually come to work. It all starts with the writers, you know. That's where the ideas come from. (laughs) And you can't really make a movie or a TV show without them. Which brings up the specter of AI, which I know has been maybe not the major, you know, sticking issue with these now failed negotiations. But that is definitely a concern, right, that we don't really know how that would manifest exactly. But, you know, one of the existential threats to writers could be in the future that these things are almost automated, not everything, but some of it. That's the fear. Absolutely. And the writers have uh, asked to discuss the use of AI in writers' rooms uh, as part of these negotiations. And um, at least according to uh, some of the information that the Writers Guild put out yesterday, the studios have not really been interested in uh, having that conversation. Uh, they, they kind of said, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that when it becomes a more pressing issue. Uh, so that is one of the reasons that negotiations ultimately broke down. Do they not want to talk about it because they're planning to use it or like they just want to reserve? Because it's just very scary, the idea of being like, no, we're not talking about it. We're, we'll discuss it with the robots who are replacing you. It feels very <laughs> Don't ominous. look behind this curtain. That, that clanking sound you hear. Don't worry about it. It's fine. <laughs> 
Well, you know, we don't know for sure. Uh, the uh, the studios have not yet responded to um, some of the information that uh, the Writers Guild put out late last night. Uh, so I think we'll get more answers in the coming days. But yeah, I think it's fair to say that these uh, places, especially you know, very tech oriented operations like Netflix and Amazon Studios and Apple. They don't want to handcuff themselves and and say, no, we'll never use this technology before they even fully understand how this technology could be implemented, especially if it might help them save a little bit of money. Uh, so, um, you know, I think that they're probably trying to protect their options down the line. Um, but I think the writers want to see that, you know, in, in good faith that there's, you know, they're not going to be replaced <laughs> by a bunch of robots uh, by chat GPT. Natalie, yeah. do you know what the the next few days or weeks look like? Like what happens next, I guess is the question. Yes. Yeah, so the writers and the studios walked away from the negotiating table uh, late on Monday evening. And the writers are um, going to picket starting Tuesday afternoon. And uh, they they plan to picket for a while. Uh, there's a Where do they picket? Outside of studio gates? Outside of the studio gates, yep, there's a there's a schedule on the Writers Guild website. So you could go to the Disney lot, you could go to Netflix, Amazon, Sony. Uh, there's also some picketing happening in New York, uh, where uh, the Writers Guild East exists. They're going to picket outside of the um, NBC Universal uh, New Front event for Peacock, uh, as well as an, another location. Um, and, you know, everyone is expected to go out and hit the picket lines and, um, you know, show their support. Uh, we don't know yet when uh, they'll sit back down and try to start negotiating again. That's the big question is, is when will they get in a room and try to resume talks? Uh, but I expect it will be at least a few days before that happens. One um, unique dynamic from the last strike to, to that point, Natalie, is how people will experience it, because we are dealing with streamers particularly who have banked a lot of content and you know in 2007 2008 you had shows like the office and friday night lights like we were talking about that pretty quickly did not have episodes airing and viewers noticed and in turn studios noticed more immediately uh, the need to get to the negotiating table and figure something out i think a concern is that people like netflix and prime etc can at least pretend for a while that their business is usual and maybe wield a little bit more leverage because they have so much, you know, pretty buzzy content on the way. You know, I think that the challenge is going to be keeping people apprised of the fact that these are really valid and pressing concerns that may take a slower amount of time to reveal themselves to, to like the general public. But, um, you know, have an impact. I'm curious, like how you see those conversations going and what the sticking points will be given that the kind of pressure will be a little bit different from last time. Yeah, I think that's really astute, David. I mean, I I noted that Ted Sarandos a couple of weeks ago said, you know, we're, we're going to be better than most if there's right. a strike because we have this big library. I do think it will be interesting to see how these streaming services do kind of re-promote and reposition older content, especially, um, you know, for like a, a global streaming service like Netflix, they have a lot of international programming, uh, you know, foreign episodes of Love is Blind or, you know, whatever their hit shows are that, you know, Americans are maybe not watching right now, but 
could if they need uh, to, you know, find new content to promote to uh, their their U.S. subscribers. Uh, so that will kind of blunt some of the pain for some of these streamers and, and certainly for viewers too, uh, for a while, it will be a bit before we start to see real impact on, on our TV screens. And, you know, Netflix too produces things, you know, months uh, ahead of time uh, because of how long it takes for them to roll out a, you know, show in that binge release uh, format all over the world. They've got all sorts of shows kind of stockpiled and ready to go through the fall. And, uh, you know, so that that could help them in their negotiations. Like, you know, hey, we don't we don't need you writers as much as you think. Uh, you know, the other thing too is that all of these places have been cutting back on how much original programming they're producing. Yeah. So there have been a lot of kind of theories floating around that actually maybe the studios were okay with a short strike because it would give them cover to cancel or scrap projects that, uh, you know, don't make financial sense for them anymore. Uh, One key thing to keep in mind is that there's a provision in a lot of these deals, especially the big overall deals that showrunners have, that if, uh, you know, a strike goes on for about eight weeks, they can force majeure these deals, which basically means cancel them without repercussion uh, because of a, you know, catastrophic event, which in this case is a strike. So that would take us to end of June. uh, And I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, you know, the studios play hardball in negotiations uh, until they can get to that date where they can start to uh, cancel some of those deals. So, Natalie, as we record this, it seems to me it's kind of an open question about FYC and Emmy events, because this is the time of year where a lot of writers and showrunners will be out there on panels and doing interviews to promote their shows that are eligible. But I think there's also some um, strike regulations around that, right? Yeah. So the Writers Guild have issued some pretty specific uh, strike rules uh, for what writers can and can't do during this time, uh, which includes things like no pitching uh, new shows, no doing pretty much any business with the studios. Uh, And one of the things they've also said is that they would recommend that writers not do any sort of official FYC campaigns or, um, you know, even promote uh, a film at a film festival. Uh, So, uh, you know, you can expect to see a lot of writers drop out of uh, those kinds of events in the coming weeks. Uh, There's some gray area about whether or not they can promote uh, a project like on Twitter just, you know, something that they're excited about that they want people to watch. Uh, but I think we can expect to see a lot less of that kind of self-promotion. Um, I've also been wondering about what this will mean for the upfronts, which are coming up uh, later this month as well. Typically, there's a lot of writers and, you know, talent who come on stage for those events and, you know, say some funny jokes. And, uh, you know, unless all of those scripts have already been written, uh, that might uh, be a very different experience this year as well. And and then, you know, we could start to ask about what would happen to the Emmys if there's still a strike uh, by the time the Emmys would need to take place. We might get a press conference like we did with the Golden Globes back in 2008. Yeah. Infamous. Wow. Yeah, that would be a long strike. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone is hoping it will be that long. No, uh, but it is. Yeah, to, to Rebecca's point, it is. Um, it will be worth watching. I think which slash whether all showrunners over the next month, where it really is um, crunch time for for campaigning, um, are going to take a back seat. I, I, I think that there is some. There's room for some debate and um, difference of opinion over whether you know what it constitutes to to participate um, in promoting your work, but also a studio's work. 
um, that is in the past, but it's something I know everyone <laughs> on this podcast will be keeping a pretty close eye on um, because it is our job. <laughs> I, I did see one showrunner tweet that um, they they have, I, and I'm sorry, I'm forgetting what the show was, but that they had a show that had recently come out that they were excited for people to watch, but once the strike hit, they were not going to promote it as heavily anymore. So, um, you know, it will also be interesting to see if any talent uh, comes out in solidarity of the writers and also chooses to, you know, pick it, um, but also, you know, maybe pull back. In the past, they did, right? I, I feel like in 2007, there's a lot of actor solidarity there. Yeah, I mean, all of um, most of Hollywood is represented by a guild or a union. So there is a lot of solidarity. Uh, and um, you know, I would expect to see some talent come out, but also just in terms of how they promote their shows and talk about the writer's strike. Uh, that will be interesting to watch as well. Um, there are rules. The the Directors Guild of America, sag have rules that you do still have to cross picket lines if you need to be at work. Uh, so that could also make things interesting in the next uh, next few weeks. Well, and those unions also have negotiations in the nearish future, right? They do, yes. And that will be the next uh, big one to watch. Uh, both uh, the DGA and SAG-AFTRA, their contracts expire at the end of June. So they were waiting for the Writers Guild to, you know, kind of go through its negotiations with the studios first. Now they have an opportunity to, you know, get in there and, and do a deal with the studios while the studios are feeling some pressure. And that could help the writers then have a, a path to their own deal. Uh but, you know, there's also some concern that the studios are playing hardball right now and that they've kind of shown their hand in terms of what they are willing and, and not willing to do. And that that, you know, could lead to a director strike or a, a, an actor strike. Uh, and then, you know, then things are going to get real tough in this town. <laughs> there, there won't be many, uh, many productions that can continue if that happens. And as we've noted on this podcast before, TikTokers are in AFTRA, so there won't even mm-hmm. be social media content. <laughs> you think you can get your hair care tips somewhere else, you're going to find out something else. But what do they eat in a day? How am I, gonna... I need to know. <laughs> well... It is a good thing that TikTok is not yet part of the uh, guild that represents uh, the, the group that represents uh, the studios. So they may still be able to post on. <laughs> oh, thank God. So there's hope yet. <laughs> We're saved. Uh, well, Natalie, I think we'll have to bring you back uh, to help us explain this uh, through however long this strike lasts. Um, so thank you. And people can uh, find your reporting on this at VF.com because there's a lot to write about. So thanks for thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 
Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Well, now moving on from one uh, dramatic Hollywood turn to another, uh, on Monday, hours before the WGA strike really began, uh, the Academy announced their updated campaign rules, which they've been promising since January. Um, Rebecca, you've been our reporter on what we call the Two Leslie beat. I think maybe after these new rules, we can put Two Leslie aside and focus on the future a little bit more. Um I think we are, you know, bracing for something dramatic. To me, it seems a lot less dramatic and very detailed, which we can get into. Um, But what's kind of the overall view of what these uh, campaign changes mean? Yeah, I I mean, these are the most significant changes that they've made basically since the rules existed. So, you know, from the people I've talked to, this is a big deal that they've gone into such detail with their guidelines now instead of just sort of leaving them relatively vague when you look at what they look like. in the previous years, but they've made quite a few significant changes. I think the detail they've gone into about campaigning is very clearly um, in response to how what happened with the two Leslie campaign. So, you know, they've made clear rules for what Academy members can and cannot say on social media. You know, they can say they like to film, but you can't encourage people to vote for that movie or not vote for this movie as someone named Francis Fisher may have done. Um, So you can see certain rules are very clearly in response to what happened. And I think they've just sort of cleared up some other things that maybe had just been too vague um, in previous years. So there is some vagueness in this that, to me, connected directly to to Leslie. And you can tell me if you got more clarity on this and talking to more people. But when it comes to private events, they really kind of um, stayed away from it. Like they're saying, I think the Academy basically acknowledging they cannot regulate every time that multiple Academy members gather at someone's house to watch a movie. You know, they all have the Academy um, screening room on their Apple TVs. Like it's very easy. Um, But so if. So hosting private events like one of the ones that was connected to to Leslie, as long as you're not advertising it with official Academy channels, that's okay. Am I reading that right? Yeah. Or it's not funded by the studio or distributor. Yeah. I think what the Academy is doing here is saying we are not a policing entity. (laughs) Like, that's not our job. If it's a true FYC event, there are rules for that. If it's a bunch of fancy celebrities getting together to watch a movie of one of their friends, that's a private party. So they're drawing that line because I think what this past season's events had sort of done to them is pulled them into being in charge of approving every party, which is not what they're going to do. So yeah, it does open up opportunity for more of these sort of influential groups to get together and screen things. But that's always existed and that will always continue to exist. So I think they're just saying like, this is not our job to police these. Yeah. One of the most beloved slash reviled aspects of uh, the campaign each year is the anonymous ballot essays mm-hmm. that people do. I mean, there's just yeah. it's like as told to for Hollywood Reporter, most famously. And there is a rule now saying that that is not allowed, right? Yeah. I, when I was skimming through this long document, I, I, I slacked Katie and David. I was like, wait, <laughs> is this, well, is this what change. this means? Yeah, I mean... 
Yes, the Academy voters are not allowed to sort of talk about their ballot choices to the press, even anonymously, like it says specifically. It uses the word anonymously, which made me think it's really pointed towards those those publications. So we'll see if it still happens. I mean, they could still do that, but I, I think they're trying their best to get rid of that because they had become pretty mean-spirited, and I think uh, it turned a lot of Academy members off to see those. We did get a, a listener question about this, kind of asking, like, was that not disallowed previously, and that's why they were anonymous? My sense had always been they were anonymous so that they don't burn bridges and, you know, people they might want to work with in the future. Do you guys know if that was the reason they were anonymous before, if there was some kind of, like, if it was uh, disapproved or frowned upon but not specifically disallowed? Well, because the guidelines have been so vague for so many years, it never specifically said you can't do that. So, yeah, I I think they were anonymous because people were saying horrible yeah. things and who would want to admit that they said those awful things? I mean, yeah, I think there's there's many reasons for it. Yeah. I think it would have been pretty widely frowned upon if, like, some character actor who's in the Academy was, uh, you know, revealing every person they voted for. I just don't think that would be looked upon too well, regardless of the guidelines. I don't think any actor would want to do that, especially, you know, within the the season. But obviously, I think last round, particularly, you had such a debate around the function of these. And it doesn't look make the Academy look good that you have your members coming out immediately after voting ends to just <laughs> spew the most yeah. vile, bizarre. They're supposed to do that after the screenings at the Q&As, because uh, exactly. that's where gossip happens. In, in open view. Um <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a good change. One slightly more targeted version of, of what you guys were talking about earlier is the elimination of hosted screenings post-nominations. and Yeah, limit to them pre-nominations, right? And the limiting of them pre-nominations. And that's really a, a more direct target at the kind of clubby nature of Hollywood, particularly the actor's branch that was in full view uh, around Andrea Riseborough's nomination. Because you'd have a bunch of A-listers bringing in a bunch of A-listers in a quote-unquote official capacity at their home or whatever, um, and allow for what is consi- what was considered an FYC event to take place, even though it was really just a chance for famous people to, you know, gin each other up and, <laughs> and get uh, a friend or someone that they respect through. So that change, I think, could long-term shift the tenor of campaigning quite a bit because it's become a pretty big part of a given film's campaign, especially if it has an actor who can, as Andrea Risborough did, really lean on that level of support. Yeah, when I asked a couple strategists what stood out to them the most, that was the thing that came up. And I, uh, I was a little surprised because I didn't realize how valuable they consider those hosted screenings. And I'm like, really? Does that have like... Andrew Garfield doing a screening for you, make a big deal. And they were like, yes. So (laughs) So it gets more people to come, right? That's the idea. If you have a a famous person hosting, more people will be likely to show up. Yeah. I mean, it brings in a crowd depending on the person. And and honestly, sometimes I've I've heard of ones where that person doesn't even show up or (gasps) they don't do anything. They take a picture with the talent. Like it's a very strange thing that feels very clearly for voters to have the opportunity to be in the same room as whatever A-list person is hosting. So I think it's a good move, but it does seem like one that strategists feel like will actually affect their their plans for the year. Am I like reading this wrong in thinking that that would maybe mean that money would be spent more on like 
traditional FYC advertising. If they can't get you in a room and have Andrew Garfield, you know, tell you how good the Banshees of Inisherin is or whatever it was, like, <laughs> does that mean more billboards, more, I don't know, ads and magazines? Like, or is that, are those things totally separate? I think it means relying more on, yeah, what we think of, not what they think of as traditional means of campaigning. Um, so mainly finding the avenue to still get Andrew Garfield in that room and say X about, you know, Y mm. actor. Mm-hmm. Um, that is that is going to be the goal. But there will be there's now a you know mechanism in place to avoid that kind of happening. I don't want to say behind closed doors because it was legal and official, um, but in in a way that kind of removed, say, media in our case, or the Academy more broadly, or that excluded, as we saw last year, actors who did not have those kinds of connections. So now it's going to have to be done in the kind of way where the playing field is level a little bit in terms of connections, really, that it has to be done through um, a more established way of doing those things. And they have opened it up so you can do as many Q&As as you want, which are considered different because often those are, um, you know, a post-screening Q&A that's moderated by a journalist. And so, yeah, they're hosted by us who are not draws to get people to come into a room to meet us. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, yeah, they used to have a, a limit on those and, and that's been, it used to be four. So now that's been unlimited. So I, I, it's an interesting switcheroo they've done there. And, and It's weird that they limited it before. Yeah. I mean, I think they just, a lot of these rules just feel like they are looking at the way power and influence have affected this race mm-hmm. and trying to put into words how to make this as fair as you can. But it doesn't, they're looking at power and influence, but are they looking at money? Because I, I think one of the complaints that I had heard was that like, why is this happening? Because a tiny indie starring a an indie actress who everyone in the industry seems to like got an Oscar nomination. Like they weren't spending a ton of money. They did it in a more grassroots organic way. And I know they spent some money, but like, doesn't this just kind of like open the door for just like, well, just flood the the campaign with cash um, in, in a way that small films can't do. That is going to be the controversial element of these rules for sure. I mean, screenings cost money, um, especially mounting one with a Q and a and a reception. And for a campaign like to Leslie, that just wasn't really an option um, without those, you know, friends <laughs> who could lift the movie up a little bit. So that's going to be the big sticking point is you gr- you're going to have campaigns able to unleash unlimited Q&As that have the cash to do so yeah. um, in a way that's maybe a little bit less influential. As we saw, you know, move, a movie like Till was, was pretty robustly backed, um, but... The, the movies that do not have those that studio backing that campaign will not be able to compete at that level of visibility. Well, they did have a new provision. If you so all the films that um, are competing or are eligible are on the Academy screening room, but the distributors have to pay for them to be on the screening room platform, and they can prorate that if you are a smaller film now, which I, I feel like came up with to Leslie specifically about them pointing out that it costs money to be on there. So that seems like some step toward acknowledging that disparity, right? Yeah, I, I found out that that had quietly started last year, apparently. But, you know, now they're putting that uh, sort of open to the public as well. But, yeah, that was part of the narrative, obviously, was that that film couldn't afford all the ritzy things that other films could. But I think it, that was not in specifically to the, um, like, Academy screening site. It's also worth remembering 
the theatrical, the looming theatrical requirement that we've been hearing about. Which is not uh, part of these at all. No. Which is not part of these, which seems to have quieted down, at least in terms of, you know, how, if there is a change this year, which is looking a little bit less likely, um, how dramatic that would be. I don't think it would be as dramatic as, as the rumor was. But um, that also affects movies like To Leslie, smaller movies, mm-hmm. movies that, uh, you know, yes, getting released in a certain number of cities is doable, but, you know, the rollout of these movies is more dependent on, you know, the rolling into January and February, the the slow build, the fact that you have to space out your cash. And so that that's going to be worth watching as well, because that combined with these changes, um, it, it does put them at more of a disadvantage than they were at even a year ago. You know, a question about the calendar that I don't have a good answer to. Maybe someone listening does. That there's now two eligibility periods for the Oscars. Like if your movie comes out between January and July, you have to be submitted by September. And then if you're out in the second half there, you have to be submitted by December. Do, do you remember this, Rebecca? And do did you figure out like what significance that might have, if any? Oh, man, that's going to have to be a follow-up piece. Katie. Yeah, it, it seemed to me like they were trying to make it so that if you have a film out earlier in the year, it is available earlier to voters so that, like, in September you can watch, uh, I don't know, Are You the Guy? It's Me, Margaret. Like, that's on the Academy platform, which seems like a good thing to me. And like what you were saying, David, about relying less on the January-February window and making things available to voters earlier. Um, I hope that's the case because that, you know, that seems like another way to even the playing field in that way. I do remember, like, two years ago there was a lot of concerned that everything was going up on that site so late mm-hmm. that like no one had any time to watch anything. So I'm sure that's something that they've been um, working on. The other thing that they've uh, also made a lot clearer is the process for filing a complaint if you feel mm-hmm. like uh, you've noticed some sort of violation and the punishments for those violations, which is a long list. Every Everything from not getting to go to events to like having your membership rescinded or your Oscar taken away. So uh, they they really spell it out for you, I think, to make it a little scarier. <laughs> and every actor who submits for, you know, themselves for an acting category has to work a shift at the Academy Museum gift shop. Is that right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. They got to move those tote bags somehow. Um, we should also talk about the inclusion standards, which were included as part of this. They were passed in 2020, and it said at the time they'll go into effect in 2024. The 2024 Oscars are, in fact, upon us. I hadn't thought about them in a minute. Um, Rebecca, you included them in your piece as kind of a, a mention as, you know, another way that the Oscars are, are looking ahead. Um, should we, can we get a refresher on what they are? <laughs> do, you, do you have yeah, them handy? It's sort of one of these, you have to do this from Group A or you have to do this from group, but it's it's basically um, requirements for representation both on screen and within the creative leadership and, and crew, um, and so you know it it breaks it down. Um, we have it listed back from when we rep- reported on this in 2020, but at least one of the lead or significant supporting actor has to be from an underrepresented, uh, you know, group or. The general ensemble needs to be ensemble cast needs to be thirty percent, at least from an underrepresented group. So there's a lot of sort of specifics that I'm I'm really curious how that's all going to be sort of proven mm-hmm. to the academy that whoever this person is that has to look through all these and make sure this is all happening. Um, but you know it's funny because I remember talking to Bill Kramer at the beginning of this past Oscar season and asking about these because I knew they were coming for the following year and he mentioned that all the Best Picture nominees from the previous year would have qualified, which I found really surprising because they're not 
the easiest rules, but maybe they're easier than I think to um, to kind of accomplish. So from from what I can tell, it's on the studio side where it gets easier. So you got category A where it's what's on screen, category B where it's who makes it. So if you have at least two creative leadership positions that are a woman or an underrepresented ethnic group, like a costume designer, makeup artist, producer, um, or you could have the studio can have uh, apprenticeship and internship opportunities for underrepresented groups, or there could be audience development, uh, representation, marketing, publicity, and distribution. So like if you have a Netflix film, like the Irishman was brought up as an example um, as a film from 2019 that might not have qualified on screen. It's a movie about white men, but it's released by Netflix, which you know can have those kind of things in place. So if mm-hmm. they can qualify on those behind the scenes aspects of it, then even if it's a movie all about white people, because I think, you know, the Academy would not want to make it so that all movies that are eligible for the Oscars have to it doesn't want to determine the stories of what's eligible but I think it's a, a nudge toward the studios making them uh, and mostly well very well funded studios to think about um, diversity and equity on their sides yeah so there's four categories right and they have to make sure they meet them in at least two so you're yeah. right they, I mean the, it will be much easier to do behind the scenes than in front of the camera I think for some of these stories yeah I think it's a good example of the Academy leading and shifting a conversation uh, and doing what they should do um, within the industry. Yeah. It's a very good thing. They have a lot of leverage here. Like an Oscar is optional. Like if you want to be a studio that's like pursuing profit at all costs and you think diversity isn't consistent with that, go for it. Like the Academy does not have to invite you in there. And they're setting up these targets that are very reachable um, in very many different ways. I mean, I did think about... You know, if you're a costume designer and you're of, um, you know, native Alaskan descent and everyone's like looking at you and they're hiring you like, wait, will you help us reach our diversity and equity mm. and inclusion goals? Like that would be yeah. kind of ugly. So you you hope that it plays out in more respectful and inclusive ways than that. Um, but I think overall, I agree with you, David, that it's it's a power that they have and that they're using well. Yeah. And if you had a best picture lineup where you had the Fablemans, Banshees, Vinish, Sharon and on all qualifying, then it's I don't think it's changing the look yeah. <laughs> of the Oscar nominees to our eyes, particularly dramatically. So uh, I think anyone who's who's uh, crying about Hollywood taking it too far would have to take a take a harder look at the movies that are qualifying and what they actually look like. Yeah. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Well, to close out this very Hollywood industry-centric episode, um, Richard, let's talk about theater yeah. in New York, where real culture <laughs> lives. Right? Well, the, the commercial side of theater, at least, yes. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, the Tony nominations were announced this week on Tuesday morning, uh, just hours after the Met Gala and the writer's strike announcement. It's been quite a time. Um, but Richard, you've seen far more theater than any of the rest of us. Um, do you want to break down the highlights? Yeah, I mean, I think the big one was Some Like It Hot, you know, a musical adaptation of the 1959 film, got 13 nominations, four acting nominations included. Uh, so that was the clear winner of the nominations morning. Um, you had, you know, a reflection of the starriness of Broadway as it's become in the last 10 or 15 years with Jessica Chastain being nominated and, you know, Yaya Abdul-Mateen and Corey Hawkins, people we kind of assume, you know, think of as film actors um, and TV actors who are doing... Although they all got solid theater. All, the three of those at least have very solid theater backgrounds. Yes, that is true. Well, Chastain only was on Broadway once. About 10 years ago. She went to Juilliard, Richard. I know, famously. I know. That's true. Um, <laughs> right up the road from Broadway. Uh, Laura Linney was not nominated uh, for her play Summer 1976, but her co-star Jessica Hecht was, uh, which is great because she's really good at that. Laura Linney is great in it, too. Um, but it was a pretty good spread. You know, the best actor cat in a play category was interesting. Um, it's four black actors, one white actor, Sean Hayes, for Goodnight Oscar. Um, there's a, a lot of diversity elsewhere. And because there were just, this was a very diverse season. Um, and some of the shows that were from black playwrights, uh, black artists, um, you know, had some trouble at the box office for various and insidious reasons. But um, it was good to see a lot of that stuff um, nominated, like uh, Audra McDonald and the Ohio State Murders, a, a really beautiful play that ran last fall um, in a very a tr- sort of truncated run. Um, it closed early, I believe. So yeah, it, it feels like a good reflection of a season that was trying to do a lot of internal auditing and change um, while putting out good work, uh, and also really trying to recover from the absolute extinction level event that was the pandemic. You know, uh, yeah. Hollywood has had its own recovery period for that, but theater was, you know, really affected by it. And um, I don't think that we're out of the woods yet, but um, hopefully these nominations will propel some shows to like bigger box office returns. Um, on the flip side of that, Andrew Lloyd Webber's Bad Cinderella, a big musical that was originally called Cinderella when it played for a very short time on the West End before closing and then retooling and retitling and coming to New York. Um, That didn't get any nominations and it had already been sort of hemorrhaging money. And I think that is a kind of my my prediction would be that is curtains for that show, um, which was also very poorly reviewed. Why is it called Bad Cinderella? Because she's like tough and different and doesn't fit in with the other people in her town that's obsessed with beauty. Is this like is this like girl boss Cinderella again? <laughs> yeah, but they communicate with that by having a beautiful woman just have spiky hair and weird makeup. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds Jerry Hollywood, honestly. <laughs> it feels very familiar. It's quite a show. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't have to go deep in it. But like, there, there are some interesting things represented. I think for me, I mentioned it last week, the big competition is between Chastain, who's nominated for a very interesting spare sort of reimagining of the classic Gibson play A Doll's House. Um, that's the one where she walks out onto 45th Street at the end, um, up against Jodie Comer, who does this hour, 40-minute one-woman show that is um, pretty extraordinary. So I think that's one of the big title bouts of the of the evening, which will be on June 11th. Uh, I'm feeling very invested in Sarah Bareilles and Into the Woods, because that's really the one of these shows that I've seen. Um, Best Actress in a Musical is always competitive. Is yeah. she going to win, Richard? Uh, she has really stiff competition. She has She's up against Michaela Diamond, who is uh, the 
the co-lead of Parade, the Jason uh, Robert Brown musical that was always, when I was in theater school and college, like, that was like the sort of thinking person's favorite musical that was no one really understood because it was difficult and dark. And, and it is difficult and dark. And it's now getting this big, very lauded Broadway production. It's Michaela Diamond and Ben Platt. So she's a big contender. There's also Victoria Clark, um, who is in a show called Kimberly Akimbo, uh, which was a play 20 years ago that then was adapted into a musical by the playwright. Um, and it's about a woman or a girl who's a teenage girl, um, but has a sort of genetic disorder where she adva- ages at a much more rapid rate. So she looks to be like Victoria Clark is, like a woman in her 60s, but she's a 16-year-old. So it's a big acting challenge that Clark, um, you know, who people are a fan of from Light in the Piazza and various other things, uh, she really, you know, seizes it. So it's those three, I think. Borealis is probably, I would think, in third position there. Um, but she is very good in Into the Woods, or was very good in Into the Woods. So I'm happy that she was at least recognized for that. Uh, I'll just note, uh, by my count, there's two succession actors who are nominated. You mentioned Jessica Hecht and then... Um, uh, also, Arian Moyed for A Doll's House. Yes. Um, I don't know if either of them is going to win, but, you know, Succession is everywhere when it <laughs> comes to New York actors specifically. Yeah, I mean, Succession is a great New York show. And so, you know, there are a lot of Tony nominees who are on that show or and have been on that show. Um, so, yeah, Arian Moyed is really good in A Doll's House. It's, it's the less flashy role. It's sort of the villain role. Um, so I, I was happy that people recognized the work he was doing because it, it's a very, again, it's a very subtle low-key production of that play. And I think that that's the challenge that Chastain's facing, is that she's doing a great performance, but is this kind of recessive version of Nora um, Helmer, um, whereas Jodie Comer is, uh, it's much bigger. I love this for Jodie Comer, that she had this, such a breakout on Killing Eve, when I think a lot of us had no idea who she was, and then The Last Duel kind of um, didn't launch her the way that maybe it should have. But now she's just taking Broadway by storm. She kind of cannot be stopped. It's one of those performances where you're like, oh, Jesus Christ, that person can really act. You know, I remember seeing Billy Piper in a play called Yerma a few years ago, and it was like, oh, I did not know she could do that. And like, yeah, uh, that's always very exciting. And I think, obviously, you know, Comer has been rewarded for it already with the Olivier Award in London. And, and, and I th- my hunch is that she will get a Tony for it. Uh, well, Richard, you should tease. Uh, we had a listener write in asking us to talk more about the Tonys and uh, their wish was granted very quickly. But there's more to come on the Tonys from you and people who know much more about theater. Yes, I will be doing with uh, Chris Murphy, our colleague, and uh, our colleagues at different publications, Esther Zuckerman and Jackson McHenry, uh, a Tony's special episode of this podcast uh, coming to you in early June. Look forward to it. That does it for this week's show. A tease for next week, we're going to be doing a Oscar flashback episode for AAPI Heritage Month. We're going to talk about Flower Drum Song, the 1961 musical adapted from the Broadway show. Uh, I've never seen it. I'm really excited to see it. It was nominated for five Oscars. Um, So watch it with us and join that conversation. In the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com, including coverage of the new Oscar rules and the Tonys and the writer's strike ongoing. Much to come on that story in particular. Um, You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. And on our own, I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos. And David. David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best pitch for publicists who let their clients come on this show goes to David Canfield. The chance for famous people to gin each other up. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. 
there's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Mm-hmm.